Hi, this is Brent White, and welcome to my sermon podcast. I preached the following message on October 15th, 2017 at Hampton United Methodist Church. And the subject of this sermon is not a popular one. It's mostly about God's wrath. Now, I know for many of us, we we don't like that word, and we don't like thinking about God as having wrath, God being righteously angry. But as I explain in the sermon, if God truly loves us, then it follows that God will have wrath toward our sin. The good news, of course, is that God has done something about it. It was a part of God's plan from the beginning to save us from God's wrath by sending his son, Jesus. That's what this sermon's about. I hope you enjoy it. And I'm going to read today's scripture, which is um, Hebrews chapter 2, verses 5 through 18. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not see everything in subjection to him, but we see him, who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, He is able to help those who are being tempted. Thank you, Allison. That was a long scripture passage. In fact, it's a long and rich, um, densely textured scripture passage, so much so that I'm going to spend two weeks on it. So consider this part one of uh, our series on this text. And to remind you, I am preaching about... The, the five core convictions of the Protestant Reformation. Um, we are going to soon be celebrating the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. What is the day of that uh, anniversary? 31st. The 31st. Yes, October 31st, 
um, is Reformation Day. Uh, it was 500 years ago, uh, this October 31st, that Martin Luther nailed uh, what are called the 95 Theses to the door of the All Saints Church in Wittenberg and inadvertently launched the Reformation. A couple of hundred years after that, our very own John Wesley um, started our Methodist movement. So we are here today in part because of the work of these reformers, and we celebrate the five core convictions, uh, one of which is that we are saved by Christ alone. Christ has done everything necessary for us to, uh, to go to heaven, to have uh, eternal life, to have future resurrection. And so I wanted to choose a scripture that would encapsulate um, uh, what Christ has done for us in his saving work. And this is about as good as any. But like I said, I'm going to spend a couple of weeks on it because there's a lot here. We don't know who the author of Hebrews is. He is anonymous. But we do know why he's writing this letter. He tells us at the beginning of chapter two, he's concerned that these Christians to whom he's writing, who have undergone great persecution and suffering because of their faith, are now in danger of drifting away from their faith. And later in this very same letter, chapter six, verses four through six, he issues these somber words of warning for it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again, the son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. <clears throat> the people about whom this author is speaking, in many ways, they, they don't sound very different from us. They had once been enlightened like us. They had tasted the heavenly gift of salvation like us. Like most of us, they were genuine Christian believers but they drifted away. They fell away from the faith. And now they're lost. And it sounds like they've passed some kind of point of no return and are beyond hope. Could this happen to us if we drift away? Although we Methodists share so much in common with our fellow Protestant Christians, there are some non-essential doctrines about which we disagree. We disagree with Presbyterians and many Baptists on the doctrine of eternal security, sometimes called perseverance of the saints, sometimes referred to as once saved, always saved. We Wesleyan Christians, by contrast, believe that backsliding from the faith is possible, that it's possible even after we receive this gift of salvation, after we're justified, after we're born again, after we receive the gift of the spirit, that we can lose our salvation. I, I, I don't believe that it happens easily. I, I hope it doesn't happen often. 
And I believe that if we are genuine Christian believers, the Holy Spirit himself, as Romans 8 says, testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. So we can have confidence and assurance that we are saved. We ought to have that by all means. But I'm afraid that I would be guilty of of pastoral malpractice if I failed to warn you of the danger that we face. Don't drift away, the author of Hebrews says. Your very soul is at stake. How do we avoid drifting away? Well, that's the question that the author of Hebrews wants to answer today. By paying much closer attention to what we have heard. And what exactly have we heard? We've heard the gospel of Jesus Christ, which the author summarizes for us very nicely in today's scripture. He reminds us of what Christ has accomplished for us and how Christ has accomplished it. And I hope you'll agree after after hearing this message that Christ has done everything necessary for us to be saved. There's not one single thing that any of us can add to what Christ has already done for us. And it's on the basis of Jesus Christ and Christ alone that any of us are saved. This is good news. This is the best news of all. The author begins by quoting Psalm 8. What is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you care for him? You made him, you made him uh, for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. This psalm is looking back to Genesis chapter 1 and 2. It's looking back to the special vocation, the special calling, the special job that God originally gave humanity, gave to Adam and Eve in the garden. They were created, after all, in God's image. Uniquely, we are created in God's image. God gave us this world to care for, to cultivate, to nurture. We are, as the Bible says somewhere, his vice regents. Um, What's that like, a vice president or something? We, We are working on God's behalf in this world. We are supposed to work for justice, for prosperity, for the wise stewardship of the resources God has given us. And for peace, we have a job. That's what we're made for. We're made to do that. My family were in my family and I were in Washington, D.C. last July, and we went to the Lincoln Memorial. Most of you have seen the statue. It communicates Lincoln's strength, his wisdom, his steadiness, his faith. It inspired me to spend at least 20 minutes thinking about Lincoln and the principles for which he stood. But you know what I didn't spend even a moment thinking about while I was there at that monument? The marble out of which the sculpture was made, how much it cost to make it, when it was created, the the biographical details of the sculptor. I didn't even know his, I don't even know his name. Or, or how difficult it must have been to create. However important those details are, 
I thought only about Abraham Lincoln, the man in whose image this sculpture was made. We are made in the image of God. When people look at us, they ought to see God. They ought to learn something about who God is, about who God's son Jesus is. They ought to see God's glory rather than our own glory. They ought to praise the one in whose image we're made rather than praising us. How are we doing at this task? Obviously, when we look at the news over the past couple of weeks, probably not so good. <laughs> think of the massacre in Las Vegas, the, 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 the pattern of rape and sexual abuse and harassment that's happened in Hollywood with the silent um, permission of dozens or hundreds of people who just looked the other way out of greed the constant threat of nuclear war with North Korea, the constant threat of terrorism. It's obvious that we human beings have failed to be the people that God created us to be. Far from putting everything in subjection under our feet the way God intended, we human beings are the ones who are being subjected. We're subjected to Satan, and evil spiritual forces. We're subjected to sin. We're subjected to fear, especially the fear of death, the author tells us. From the moment of the world's very first sin, when Adam and Eve decided that they should be the ones in control rather than God being in control, we human beings have been out of control. The moment we decided to glorify ourselves instead of God, we lost the glory that God intended for us. So these words from Psalm 8 seem hopelessly unfulfilled. This is is what the author of Hebrews points out in verse 8. At present, we do not see everything in subjection to him. Him meaning Humanity in general, mankind in general. But the author says, you know what we do see? We see Jesus. Verse 10 calls Jesus the founder of our salvation. Other translations translated as pioneer, the perfect leader. One Bible scholar says that we should translate that word as champion. Champion has a special meaning in the ancient world. A champion was a military leader who represented his nation in a war against another nation's champion. So the best example of this I can think of is David and Goliath in the Old Testament. Goliath was the champion of the Philistines. And the idea was, go back and look at this story in 1 Samuel. Uh, Goliath... um, was looking for someone from Israel to fight. He was looking for Israel's champion. The two of them would fight it out, and the winner of their battle would win the war, right? So if if Goliath won for the Philistines, then the Philistines would automatically have won the war. It would save a lot of bloodshed, right? You just kill one person instead of killing thousands of people, including civilians. I mean, it's, you know, there's... I'm not saying, I don't know, 
There's something to it, I suppose. But, but Goliath is looking for a champion from Israel, but no one in Israel is brave enough to do it, of course, until David steps to the plate. And of course, David wins his battle over Goliath. David represents Israel. And through David's victory, the whole nation, the whole people of God win a victory. He represents all of Israel. He wins a war for his people. In the same way, Jesus, the author says, is humanity's champion. He represents us sinners. He does for us sinners what we are unable to do for ourselves, what Adam and Eve were unable to do in Genesis 1 and 2. Jesus lives a life of perfect obedience to God that we ourselves were unable to live. We failed miserably. Jesus did it for us and Jesus succeeded. But not only that, the author of Hebrews tells us in verse nine that Jesus tasted death for everyone. Later in verse 17, he makes a similar point when he says that Jesus is our merciful and patient high priest in the service of God who makes propitiation for the sins of the people. Let me talk about that strange word, propitiation. The Old Testament describes the high priest. And once a year, the high priest would go into the tabernacle, later the temple, would go into this small room separated by a thick curtain known as the Holy of Holies. And he would offer a sacrifice. He would sacrifice a goat And then he would sprinkle that blood on the top of the Ark of the Covenant, known as the mercy seat, to atone for all of the people's sins. This action turned away the wrath of God, the wrath that God has towards sin, towards sinners, and and it makes forgiveness possible. This turning away of God's wrath is what this word propitiation means. I've often said in sermons that sin is the biggest problem that any of us faces in this world. And that's true. But it's true because what our sin does to God and how it kindles God's wrath toward us. God is righteously angry because of sin and something needs to be done to turn away God's wrath. In other words, because of our sin, we have a problem with God and God has a problem with us. And that problem is wrath towards sin. And I get it. There is there is nothing I could talk about that's probably less popular than talking about God's wrath in this day and age. God is love, the Bible tells us. And if that's the case, then we sometimes mistakenly believe that God's love is at odds with God's wrath. If God is loving, he wouldn't have wrath, we think. Earlier this year, there was a church, an Episcopal church in Sandy Springs that was called the church, the Episcopal Church of the Atonement. But they decided they needed to change their name. And a newspaper article describes why. Let me read from it. In Christian theology, atonement refers to Jesus suffering on the cross 
for all of humanity's sins. The ministers at the church call that a dark interpretation and would rather have the revived church focus on love and community. Do you see what the, the ministers have done there? They've, they've pitted God's love against God's wrath. If God is love, let's focus on God's love. If God is loving, then he won't have wrath. The article quotes the, the church's vicar. I think the doctrine of atonement is just too dark. He added that some, some of his Candler school students say that the name atonement is off-putting. Sometimes a rebranding is necessary, he says. Candler school students, bless their hearts. <laughs> I say that as a Candler school graduate myself. But they are right about one thing. Atonement is dark because it deals with sin and wrath, which is incredibly ugly and unpleasant. But atonement is also mostly about God's love. It's the greatest word in the world as far as I'm concerned. It's filled with light. I mean, it literally was a word that English translators invented back in the 16th century to describe our reconciled relationship with God. It's, it's, it's putting, it's at one meant, at one meant. It's how we become at one with God. It's a little dark, but it's mostly bright light. Consider this. Didn't it make you angry two weeks ago when you heard about what happened in Las Vegas, when you considered that this sniper in this hotel tower could just take the lives of 58 men, women, and children, just like that. Men, women, and children who aren't so different from any of us. Men, women, and children who were just out enjoying themselves. There's nothing wrong with that. They were doing nothing to deserve what happened to them. And And this man kills them for for no reason. Didn't that make you angry? You're not angry about that because you're unloving, because you're unfeeling, because you're uncaring. The very opposite. You're angry because of your love. You're angry because of your sense of justice. You're angry because of your compassion. Your anger goes hand in hand with your love. You think of the lives of these people who through no fault of their own were killed. And you think this is deeply unjust. Something must be done to make this right. You feel this way because of love. And if you want a loving God, you also want, whether you realize it or not, a God who has wrath towards sin and evil, a God who punishes it, who holds perpetrators accountable for it, for it, and who sees to it that justice is fully and finally done. The alternative is unthinkable, that God could look at all this sin and evil in the world and think, eh, this isn't that big of a deal. Are you kidding me? Sin and evil are the biggest deals 
the Bible says again and again, and they must be punished and they will be punished. Sin is going to be punished either through Jesus on the cross or through us in hell for eternity. The choice, as scripture makes clear, is ours. A couple of years ago, there was a controversy involving, well, this very topic of wrath um, that involved the Presbyterian Church USA denomination. They wanted to include this very fine contemporary hymn called In Christ Alone in their newly revised hymnal. They just had a small problem with one particular line. And if they could just change this one line, it's like six or seven stanzas in the hymn. But if they could just change this one line, then they would put it in their hymnal. So they asked permission of the authors. Can we just change this one line? And this line is found in a stanza that reads as follows. Till on that cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. For every sin on him was laid. Here in the death of Christ, I live. Does that sound too dark for you? (laughs) The offending line for these Presbyterians was, the wrath of God is satisfied. They wanted to change the line to, the love of God is magnified. So they asked permission of the authors, and the authors said, No. (laughs) And good for them, I say. Of course, the love of God is magnified on the cross. That's true. But how is it magnified? It's magnified because Christ alone, willingly and out of love, bore our sin and suffered God's wrath in our place so that we wouldn't have to. That's the greatest demonstration of love the world has ever seen. By all means, the love of God was magnified, but the cross demonstrates God's love because of the way that God uses it to rescue us from God's wrath. If God's wrath isn't the problem, then the cross doesn't demonstrate love at all. It would be like, suppose your your house was on fire. Now, fortunately, you, your loved ones, your pets, they're all outside the house The firemen are on their way. Everything's great. I mean, you know, the insurance will take care of what you lose. So the point is, like, what if your house is on fire? Everyone's safe. And I say to you, I want to demonstrate how much I love you. And then I run into that burning building and I die. How on earth would that demonstrate any love? My death would be pointless. Now, suppose your house is on fire, except this time one of your children is in the house. And, 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 I, and I run in. I don't, even, I don't stop to talk to you. I just run into that building and rescue your child at the risk of my life. And even in the process of rescuing that child, I end up dying. In fact, there was really no alternative. I had to choose either my life or the child's life, and I chose The child's life. Now, in that scenario, have I demonstrated love for you and your child? Yes, of course. That's precisely what the cross is analogous to. 
The cross only demonstrates God's love because of the way that God himself in the person of his son, Jesus, rescues us and rescues us from something far worse than simply a a burning building. It rescues us from God's wrath and an eternity in hell. So the author of Hebrews compares Jesus to the high priest in the Old Testament, except Instead of offering the blood of an animal, he offers his own blood. And unlike the sacrificial system of the Old Testament, Christ's blood provides forgiveness for all of our sins, past, present, and future. No matter how serious those sins are, forgiveness is available to everyone because of what Christ has done. Let me close with this. And again, I'm going to say more about this next time. There's so much here. Let me look at verses 14 and 15. I talked about how Jesus was our champion in doing what needed to be done to turn away God's wrath. Listen to what else our champion does for us. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death, He might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. So Jesus Christ, our champion, defeated Satan. Now, Satan, of course, is still alive and well and active in the world. God has granted him a constrained amount of power. But because of Christ's life, death, and resurrection, even Satan knows that his days are numbered. And when Christ returns, he will be fully and finally defeated. But we get to share in a little bit of this victory in the here and now. Because for those of us who are united with Christ in faith, guess what? We no longer have to fear death. And the author of Hebrews says this is Satan's main tool To use against us our fear of death. What happens after I die? How can I know I'm saved? I mean, what do I need to do in order to be saved? If you watch any TV show or movie that deals with this question, the answer that they always give is you have to be good enough, right? I mean, You ask most Americans, surveys show that even many Americans who identify as Christians will say the same thing. If you're good enough, of course, you'll go to heaven. But that answer, if you think about it, which sounds very inclusive, actually ends up being kind of exclusive because how good is good enough, right? How do I know that I've been good enough? How can you live your life with any kind of peace if you really take seriously God in heaven? How can you live your life never quite knowing if you are good enough? Am I as good as Mother Teresa? I mean, yeah, probably not, right? Is is she the standard? Is Billy Graham the standard? Is Osama bin Laden the standard? I mean, what what's the what are the rules here? And yet the message we constantly get is be good enough. Just be good enough. Don't worry about it. The devil loves to to make us think that. But the gospel, 
The real gospel, as opposed to this phony kind of gospel that says be good enough, the real gospel is you don't have to be good enough. God loves you and accepts you and saves you through faith in his son, Jesus Christ, because of what Christ has done on the cross and through his resurrection. In spite of the fact that you're not good enough, all of your sins, past, present, future, forgiven, Christ has paid the penalty for them. All you have to do is receive the gift. Just hold out your hands in faith and receive the gift. He's done it all for you. Amen. And that's the best news of all. And I hope that inspires us. Almighty God. Despite the presence of phony gospels in the world that tell us to be good enough, to be good enough and we'll go to heaven, your gospel, the true gospel, is actually much, much better, much more reassuring. I pray for anyone right now who has never held out his hands in faith to receive this gift of eternal life that you give us. May they do so even today. Thanks for listening. If you're on the south side of Atlanta on Sunday morning, I want you to know that you are welcome to come and worship with us at Hampton United Methodist Church. We're on West Main Street, right in downtown Hampton. We have two worship services. We have a 9 o'clock acoustic contemporary service and a more traditional service at 11. Hope to see you there. 